knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you still looking for a lightweight and comfortable option to fit your hunting style? Well, look no further than Tethered's Phantom Saddle. It's extremely comfortable and extremely adjustable to fit exactly the way you want to hunt. I think my favorite features of this new saddle are the comfort channels, which is where the bridge kind of locks into the saddle. There's no more kind of fidgeting, moving your saddle around to try to find the right spot and reduce hip pinch. This just kind of locks in exactly where it's supposed to be. It's an extremely comfortable sit. The other uh, option or aspect of the saddle that I really like is the utility bridge. Oftentimes, you're in a tree putting your tether up, and you have a branch in the way, and so you're not at the right height. And it changes the angle of your bridge, which changes your comfort. Well, there's a utility bridge now that the Phantom has to where you can adjust that. So no more does it matter where exactly your tether height is as you can adjust that length of your bridge uh, with the utility bridge itself. I think the other thing that helped me make the adjustment two years ago-ish when I transitioned to saddle hunting was the Predator platform. If you're coming from a tree stand, a little bit of familiarity with having a platform uh, went a long way in just making me comfortable with my overall setups. The Predator platform might be something you want to look into. If you're interested and you're still just kind of on the fence, you can go to tetherednation.com and check out their teaching train sessions that they're doing in, in a bunch of towns uh, that are most likely near you. Um, they're doing these sessions to help you come out and get familiar with their gear, talk to some saddle hunters, and, and just kind of a, a exactly what it is. They're there to kind of teach you how to saddle hunt and how to get into it the the, the best, the most comfortable way, and in the safest way possible. So if you check out that tab on their website at tetherednation.com, teach and train, it'll show a bunch of locations. I'll be at the Total Archery Challenge in Seven Springs, August through uh, 20th through the 23rd, and I hope to see you guys there. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 184. Today we dive into episode two, part number two of the Wind and Thermals Hunting Beast listener Q&A miniseries with Dan Enfall. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Setting you off with another podcast here, getting you rocking and rolling into the 4th of July weekend. First, let me just wish everyone a happy 4th of July uh, early. If you're listening to this prior to the, the, the 4th holiday, let's go out and do some celebrating of of uh of our uh, of our nation i think it's uh probably you know badly needed that we uh, do a little celebrating you know we've had enough uh we've had enough weirdness going on in 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 our country the past you know six months five months whatever whatever it's been regardless of, of what variety i think we're i think we're due a little celebration you know responsibly both with the the libations and uh whatever your health status uh status may be it's just make sure that we're doing all those things uh, responsibly and taking care of each other. But with that, we've got a, a cool show today. Um, just a quick couple updates uh, for you before we jump into the jump into the podcast on the trailer front. Uh, making good progress there. Got the propane kind of all hooked up and ready to roll. Did that yesterday. I'm recording this early on Sunday, and I'm going to go out right after I'm done with this. 
and put the chimney in and get that all set up because I had some rain yesterday, so it cut me a little bit short. I didn't want to be cutting holes in the ceiling or in the roof while I had uh, potential rainstorms coming over. Um, so going to do that today, and then I'm going to do a little bit of through bolting um, uh, for for the e tracks for you know the the hammock setup that I'm that I'm rolling because way it's set up now it's really just kind of anchored into the the plywood because there weren't any studs where I was needing to anchor it in the one end so I'm going to do a little bit of through bolting to kind of provide that those e tracks just a little bit more support that way Chad doesn't end up on the ground uh, during any of our uh, during any of our trips and then from there that's I'll probably pause there until I get back from vacation headed to my dad's in the Carolinas and I'll probably pause there and then kind of try to wrap everything up in the second half of July because and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel like we're getting there like the big kind of projects are done with like getting all the paneling up and the heater in and i just got the solar generator in this past week uh it's a blue uh blue eddy 1500 watt hour solar generator it's killer i've, st- I've started charging some stuff with it just to kind of play with it and see how it works it's going to be more than what i need and so the next step for me is really going to be get solar panels and figure out what i'm going to do there and i think i'm going to go with one 175 watt panel to start and see how that you know does with my charging needs and the testing i'm going to do is i'm really just going to kind of you know, on a daily basis, kind of try to drain all the batteries of everything that I think that I might be charging. So, you know, computer, you know, laptop, any kind of, you know, uh, camera batteries and uh, GoPro Pro batteries and, and and things like that. And then recharge those every day and just see how much power I'm going to draw and how much I'm going going to need to replace on a, on a daily basis. Cause I'm not and charge phones, of course, that, that as well. Um, the computer is probably going to be the biggest draw, honestly. Um, and it's charging that, you know, the past couple of days with no problem and really not even touching the battery. So, um, so that's really killer. So that's really the next phase that I'll tackle when I get back. And then a few more pieces of paneling things to put up and, you know, and put the flooring in and it, that thing should be done. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that I'll finish it up by the, uh, um, by the end of the end of July and it'll be ready to rock and roll one quick, uh, additional update might actually, I know I've been talking about headed to Missouri this fall. I didn't think I was going to have a chance to go scout. It seems like I might actually have an opportunity to go scout. I've been kicking around a couple ideas with my buddy to head to the Midwest, um, for Missouri and one other state that I plan to hunt, uh, next year and do some scouting, put out some cameras now. So I get, you know, so we can get a year's worth of Intel and data, um, so we're not starting from scratch next year. And so I'm not starting from scratch whenever I get to Missouri this year. So I'll keep you posted on that. That is not 100%, uh, guaranteed yet. We have to kind of look at calendars, uh, make sure I can get away since I'm working remotely. I figured for my job, I figured I might as well take, take advantage of it and get out and get some, uh, get some whitetail stuff done and, and be able to work and fulfill my, my job obligations at the, uh, at the same time. But also one, uh, I guess one more thing I wanted to make mention of, um, in terms of, uh, in, in terms of trail cameras, you know, my buddies at Exodus are probably most likely, and they do it every year. And when I say probably, it's really just hedging, um, the, their velvet fest, uh, uh, piece is going to be coming out soon where they kind of engage, you know, all the folks who are using cameras and, and do a little bit of a, a contest and a little bit of social stuff along, uh, along with that. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But more importantly, you know, if you're looking for trail cameras and you need good trail cameras to put out, I'd be headed to exodusoutdoorgear.com and check out their cameras. They got a killer five-year warranty, uh, you know, a no, a no BS policy, theft policy as well, where it's like if something gets stolen, they kind of help you out to, to get your, uh, to get your re- re- replacement camera. Um, those are some of my best buddies and, uh, you know, you, you can't go wrong in using their products, not just from a product standpoint, but from, you know, the dudes and the, and, and the type of support that they give their, they give their folks. So with that, let's go ahead and get ready to get cranked up for this next, uh, episode. This is part number two of the wind and thermal session with Mr. Dan and fault, the hunting beast himself. Um, first part was awesome, you know, super, super rad. And I, I've cut these up just because they, they got a little bit lengthy. Um, and we're talking a lot about, you know, I don't want to say complicated stuff, but with wind and thermals, it's things that you might want to take, take some notes and just, um, go back and rehash and think about. And so I didn't want to provide like everything all at once to where you didn't have time to digest some of the, some of the information. And so today is part two of that conversation. We start talking a little bit about thermal hubs. We talk about, you know, hunting near horse trails and scent and, and, and what type of, um, does it have an impact on deer or, 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 or not, uh, hunting bottoms, river valleys, you know, near water, things of that nature. And those are all t- types of the, the types of conversations we're going to have today. So with that, I'll let you guys get jumped into the podcast. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. The, uh, but you mentioned something there before we, before we went into talking about like, you know, how foliage and stuff like that might kind of, you know, bounce wind around and stuff like that and disperse it and make it roll back and, you know, do all kinds of crazy things because it's a solid object and wind is blowing into it. But you mentioned, you know, 
thermal thermal hubs. And it's something that people will talk about because a lot of times, like I think you started to mention a little bit earlier whenever you, we were talking about, you know, river bottoms and stuff like that, where like, you know, or valleys where that sign really holds. If you get a spot where you've got a couple of ridges kind of coming together and kind of dumping into a bottom, it's like the sign down there is usually pretty killer. And that's you know, a lot of times where you'll find a little bit of a thermal hub. But could you explain for folks, you know, you know what a thermal hub is? And then the follow up to that is the signs a lot of times really, really great down there. How do you go about hunting one of those places? Because it seems almost impossible where the deer always have the upper hand in those in those positions. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's just like uh, uh, Matt's version of the um, of the river crossing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that might even be a thermal hub. What he was describing. So if you have a, a, a valley that's surrounded by hills and, and, and points coming out from different directions, a lot of times one of the, one or two of those points have a nice like knob on it or a flat spot where they can bed and watch that whole valley and all the thermals drop and then they just wander down into that thermal thermal hub where everything's coming together in the evening before they come out um again a lot of that takes patience um a lot of it's uh setting up where they come in and out of there and maybe at different time frames maybe you have to get them you know towards pre-rut or uh, coming back in the morning um, but they're tough. And, and again, if you just jump down in that bottom, you're going to have issues, right? You have to get them up on the side hills, right? So you have to really scout it out well, and you can't be in there all the time scouting either. You have to get in there, learn it, get out and then have a plan. And and when you're in there learning it, you have to be saying, well, okay, well, how would I hunt if you came out over here or if you came out over there? And there's probably several ways the deer comes out of there based on, you know, food directions and, uh, where doe's bed and stuff like that at different times of the year. And you have to kind of, or what I do, uh, you don't have to do this, but what I do is I monitor the foods. Mm-hmm. I monitor the does. I monitor the area. And if I see sign of a buck coming out of there someplace in a certain direction, well, then I know which direction to be that he's probably leaving on. And I take an educated guess and go in there and hunt. Right. So there might be one spot I hunt if he's, pestering those and there might be one area i hunt if he's pestering a uh, cornfield or if he's eating alfalfa or, or acorns um but there's probably a time frame when he comes out of there in daylight and there's probably a time frame when he doesn't right and again it comes down to being patient right matt going back to that setup you have now that we've kind of brought it brought it back you know is there is there a position and dan i don't know if you would advocate for this or not but you know, is there a position you could get into to maybe even just do an observation hunt to where it's like you might have a chance, but you like you're you're not going to booger anything up to try to get some live intel? Is like even even if you don't see him, if you see other deer doing certain things to try to get a little bit more intel about that spot, is there a possibility of doing something like that? Yeah, there probably is. Um, if I sat between where they're where I'm assuming they're betting and the acorn area that I found, it'd be on the backside, probably a hundred yards away from where they're actually crossing that drainage ditch. And I could probably see what they're doing up on the top of that hill to the hillside. I just wouldn't be able to really watch that actual drainage area. There's, it's a pretty tight funnel area, which is like Dan said, yeah, you got to make sure you don't get above them. Yeah, you got to make sure yeah. you don't get above them. So it's it it's possible, but I think it's just a very tough area to sit because it is a funnel. It probably is the thermal hub, which is would make sense as to why that community scrape is there. And there's four or five different trails that all lead right into that scrape, coming from mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. general areas. So it's it probably is the thermal hub, and it's it's tight enough that it's going to make it very difficult to observe without messing anything up. Right. Dan, do you, I mean, in situations like that or just in thermal hubs in general, if you know, you got a deer in there, maybe you, you know, maybe it's a new spot that maybe you, you know, look, let's say maybe you're even just out of state, you know, you're out on an out of state hunt somewhere and you got a a couple of days or however many days to try to get it done. And you kind of find this thermal hub. Are you going to, would you do like a, a sit and just kind of like somewhere where you could observe and maybe, you know, glass and try to figure out what's going on and then, and then make a move? You know, is that something you would consider doing? 
Yeah, I would consider that. Uh, I think if I had a few days and I had the area figured out, mm-hmm. um, I'd probably just go for broke. Right. Um, and just and just try. You know, maybe I get up. You know, high in a tree. Maybe I. Uh, you know, I, I take a look at it and look at what the the best chance scenario is, and I, I take a stab at it. And uh, you know, you know, sometimes I do that anyways because I'm, I'm, you know, hunting several bucks or something, and I mm-hmm. just don't have the time to dick around or something, and I just go take a <laughs> shot at it. You know, and uh, occasionally it works, but um, I would have to say just about ninety nine percent of the time when I go down in a valley and hunt a you know, hunt a big buck. I usually see him and I usually walk out shaking my head and I'll never do that again. And then about a year later, I, I get cocky and feel like I can do it again. Right. <laughs> right. No, I hear you, man. I hear Hey man, but that's why we love beast tactics, dude. It's like, that's the one thing like, you know, I don't know. That's the one thing I've always appreciated about it. Once I, you know, got, you know, was able to meet you and start kind of, you know, you know, learning the beast way, if you will, was that it gave me, you know, the confidence to go, like when I saw something and I thought I knew what I needed to know, like I, I just go after it, you know, and I just go, Hey, mm-hmm. this is either going to work or I'm going to screw it up and then I'll go find another deer, but I'm not going to know any different if I don't try it. You know what I mean? And, and, so, and you, you know, what's interesting about that too is, is, is really, it's not a bad, bad tactic to just jump in and try worst case scenario. You get your butt hand and you learn a lesson, Yep. but, you, you also, at the same time, you move that deer out of there to maybe some place where you can hunt, you know, where you can kill them. Yeah. And if you know the area well and you know the other bedding areas, it's not a bad thing. I mean, you just let them live there forever, waiting and waiting and waiting, and you just lives there forever. Right. Maybe one day you'll find a skull down there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or it gets driven off or something like that, or it gets killed by someone else or whatever the, whatever the case right. is. But yeah, it's like, I got no free rides. You got to give it a shot. That's it, man. <laughs> that's it. It's like, that's why. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's one of the things, you know, for me that changed, you know, a lot over the years was just like being willing to be aggressive and go make some mistakes and, and figure it out. And I'll tell you what, screwing up on a bunch of deer has put me on more deer than, than anything else ha- ever has. You know, and, you know, I think it's the same thing with wind and thermals. It's like, hey, go figure it out, man. Get up into a tree, take some milkweed, start dropping. You know, one thing I even started doing, Dan, this, you know, this off season, as I'm scouting, I carry milkweed with me all the time. And whenever I'm scouting areas, you know, I'll look at what my prevailing wind is and I'll stand there and I'll drop milkweed, you know what I mean? And try to start to learn like, okay, whenever I have this wind, you know, in the water, if I'm close to water, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. the water's still warmer or whatever. I start to try to figure out like what I'm going to get in those areas while I'm scouting, you know, in the off season, that way it's not a big surprise when I get there come October, November, December, or whatever the case is. Um, yeah. People think it's just a tool to check wind direction, but it teaches you so much about the way wind channels and stuff. That's mm-hmm. where I learned most of, most of what I've learned from wind Yeah, is from milkweed, watching what it does when it hits obstacles, what it does when it goes around uh, trees. And so that's how I know what wind does when it hits the wall of trees. As soon as I've dropped milkweed and washed it, it's like, holy crap. Yep. You cannot just sit on that edge and expect the deer to, you know, not bust you. Right. You know, that's the stuff that teaches you. And, and uh, you know, the mistakes teach you too. Yep. But you have to just jump in and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting when you find a bed too. Because, like, when I was scouting Ohio, like, we've, you know, big woods. So we didn't find a ton of beds. I think I want to say we found three. Um, one, which I would say would be a primary because it was down to the dirt. The other two were probably just, you know, maybe seasonal bedding, maybe rut bedding, you know, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, or maybe the one just had a really good, you know, you know, a really good setup in terms of like the thermals and the wind. So it was used most often that was the prevailing wind spot, you know, prevailing wind bed or whatever the case is. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I would literally get in the bed and just start dropping milkweed to watch like, you know, would this be a, like that particular day? Is this the wind that that deer is going to use this bed on? Right. And start to understand what the wind was doing in that bed. And man, that's, it's eye opening when you do that, when you get in the bed and you start mm-hmm. dropping milkweed and you crouch down, you're about head level where they would be, where their head would be and where their nose would be. And you start dropping it and watching what happens. It's like, makes it real clear, real quick while they're there. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. but, uh, all right. So this next one, this is kind of interesting. Cause I had this set up while I was in, while I was in Iowa. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a setup per se. It was just like what I was hunting around. And so this, this fellow writes in and says, you know, if wind's carrying human scent, you know, on hiking or horsing trails on, on public land, do the deer eventually get used to it? And how would you set up a game plan to hunt in and around those type of areas? It's curious your answer. Cause I had a similar kind of setup in, in Iowa this year. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, and actually, um, um, in the last few years, I've been using that as a tactic a lot in the conservancy I hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a hiking trail that goes through it. And those deer have learned to be okay with human scent on those trails. And I mean, when you're walking on the trails, you can watch the deer in the bushes, watch you walk past. Mm-hmm. But you step 10 feet off that trail and they, they bug out. And you, you got, you know, 50, 100 yards off the trail and they, you know, smell your scent on the ground and they freak out. Mm-hmm. But they don't bother with the trails. So that's giving me the option of putting um, cell cams all along the, the hiking trail and hunting right over the top of it. And the thing about it is, is that particular hiking trail goes right past all the bedding areas because it walks everywhere where it's dry and the edges where the water is is where the bedding is, you know? Hmm. So a lot of those deer come out of that bedding and, and walk right across that trail, you know, right where people walk, you know, almost daily. Right. So um, I've actually uh, hunted the same stand three, four days in a row and had multiple bucks from underneath me each, each day and not even bother with my scent. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting. I think if they get directly downwind, they can smell right where you're at, and then, they, then they're going to monitor you and, and know you're there. But, I mean, you, your right. ground scent, I got away with a lot. Right. But I do think that if they smell you in the tree, they're not going to just come walking over there. They know the difference of whether you're there or, or smelling old old scent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like how pungent is it, right? Is that dude here now, or is he was he here like five minutes ago walking by, or whatever the case is? The, uh, yeah. it was interesting cause I, I hunted in an area that had a horse trail. Um, and I, I saw the same thing. I, I saw hammer scrapes on the horse trail, like ridiculous scrapes and, and rubs all along it. And the other thing mm-hmm. is too, is like, and this was like a little gift on my way in, there was horse shit. I would make sure to step in it <laughs> every time I walked in, you know what I mean? And just make sure I got it all over my boots as I was walking in, just trying to, trying to blend in, you know what I mean? Like not trying to smell as little as, as as little like a human as i possibly could um <laughs> and it was funny because it makes good camel too rub it on your face yeah yeah well i did you know and i, I even ate a little bit because someone told me that you know no, I'm just kidding <laughs> but no a local actually told me i met a really nice fella if he listens to this his name's Corey, really good dude in iowa and i met him at the truck the one night when we were walking out and uh you know, he, he actually, the one who, who kind of tipped me off to an area that I had never scouted before. And that was ultimately where I ended up killing my deer, but we were hunting maybe a mile from each other on the same piece of public. And we were just kind of chit chatting at the truck the one day. And, and I had said something, you know, about the horses or whatever. And he was like, Hey, he's like, don't be bothered by the horses around here. He's like, I've seen, you know, booners, you know, walk right behind a horse after they walk right down a trail with like, you know, three horses and four people, you know, he was like, so they, it isn't bothering them. He's like, so you know, he's like, if you see good sign near a horse trail, he's like, don't be afraid to set up right on it. He's like, because the, the horses, he's like, even if they walk, walk through while you're hunting, he's like, they're not going to bother him at all. And it was interesting because I did see that. Like I walk, I passed the horse on my way out the one, uh, one evening and then jumped, you know, a couple of deer. I don't know what they were, but I, I jumped a couple of deer that, like you said, that were like five feet off the path, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I'm seeing the same thing on public land where they got one access trail. Mm-hmm that a lot of times those bucks will be tucked up on a hill watching that access trail and they just get up and walk right across that trail after the people leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Matt, I, I, ha- see it, I see it quite often. Yeah. Matt, have you had any experiences like that near, uh, you know, just like hiking trails or, or, or anything like that where it's like, you know, there's a lot of ground scent laid down where deer are just kind of not, not so much bothered by it for the most part. Yeah. That's actually where I shot my buck last year was a setup like that. It was funny. You brought that up because they're bedding like 30 yards off of the, a walking trail. But it helped me get into my setup because it didn't spook them out of the bed walking that close because they see people walking past them every day. So I was able to walk within 30 yards of their bedding and then sneak around the backside to get in on them and not bother them walking that close. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, gotta gotta love those hikers, man. They'll, they'll they'll keep you safe. The hikers in the horse poop. Just folks out there listening, make sure you rub it on your face. Step in it, you'll be all good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got a I got a uh, uh, good quick unrelated story for you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so for those of you who don't know, my wife does uh, animal rehabilitation for uh, like uh, raccoons and stuff. So she'll get a lot of calls about you know, animals and barns and stuff. And we got a call from a guy 
who lives about, uh, give or take a mile, 10 miles from here. Okay. And, uh, he's got a, uh, a, a raccoon trapped. So we go over there and it's this, this coon's got his eye ripped out on one side. It's a giant male. <laughs> one of his ears is chewed off. I mean, it's just a rough looking critter. <laughs> so I, I get this thing in this cage and, uh, uh, I put it in the back of my truck. We drive it home and, uh, we take it in the back yard by the swamp. We let it go. Just figured, you know, it can go live out in the public land. Right. Let it go in the backyard. It runs off. The next day, the guy calls up, says he has another raccoon. We go over. It's the same raccoon. <laughs> 10 freaking miles. That's crazy, man. 10 miles. You know, I did the first thing I did is look and see which way the wind was blowing. And the wind was blowing from his house towards my direction. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> that thing had to that thing had to go around a major town and had to cross a major river. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you cannot beat those animals' noses, man. <laughs> he must he, he must have had one fine lady over there, is all I'm saying, to go ten miles and cross a river, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well the funniest part is I can't believe a mature raccoon like that was that stupid to go back in that same cage trap again. I know, right? That's what I'm saying, man. It's the power of the power of the female persuasion, man. It had to be. Like it can't, <laughs> couldn't be anything else, you know what I mean? It's like it makes us do dumb things, man. I'm pretty sure that's what he had what's when's the uh raccoon breeding season? Is it is it it was it then? Yeah. <laughs> So, all right. So this next question, we'll move on to more wind and thermal here. This this fellow says, this is kind of interesting. So he says, you know, in your experience, how do bucks react to high, to high wind days? You know, are they shifting bedding on those days? Are they moving more in your experience? You know, how do you, how do you specifically kind of hunt these days, you know, and, 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 and use them like in terms of noise and, and movement for, for concealment, you know, in, in, in certain areas. So I think it's like two or three parts here. It's like, how are bucks, you know, reacting to high wind and shift in bedding and, and, and how are they moving in those scenarios? And then how are you specifically using those types of days to hunt? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You know, it seems like um, on really windy days early in the season, you don't get as much buck movement. Mm-hmm. But uh, around around rut, you know, like mid-October on, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. And maybe that's just coincidence because I've seen them in heavy winds early season too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really see it as being that big of a factor, the high winds. They still move and stuff, and they seem a little jumpy. You notice that they're always like spinning their heads around, looking around, mm-hmm. but they still seem to move. Um, the one thing about wind is the high winds, um, they move like, you you know, you can go, you can go hunt them just like any other day. Um, there's two things. Number one, wind's more consistent when it's really windy. It's blowing a certain direction. You can trust it a little more. Mm Um, number, number two is that, uh, um, you can get away with a lot. Wind is blowing brush around. You can get, you can get closer to, to beds where they can see you. You can get, you can, uh, overcome things that are like loud leaves and stuff because they're not going to hear you. So you can, you can hunt those areas that, um, normally you, uh, wouldn't get so close to, right. you know what I mean? Or you couldn't get so close to, you can take your chances and push your, your envelope. In a lot of cases I'm waiting for either a windy day or a, like a rainy day when it's pouring rain to go and hunt a certain spot or a certain deer so I can get in there and get close. Um, but as far as it affecting deer movement and stuff, they seem to still move just fine and right. and follow the same patterns. They just do seem a little jumpy. Like right. they're 
like they're on edge. Right. Yeah. I, I think, f- you know, for, for me to, to build on what you were, you were saying, it's like, I've learned to like windy days. I used to not like windy days. Um, you know, and I think part of it was because I just didn't quite know how to, how to, how to hunt it successfully. You know what I mean? Like to your mm-hmm. point, it's like using it to dive into some places where maybe you could take a little bit more risk, you know, cause with that higher wind, you're probably getting a more consistent. So it might be one of those areas that you can hunt where you, where you're getting swirling winds. And so that higher wind, wean, yeah, that higher wind speed might be what helps you out. Just gives you enough consistency where you can get away with a hunt that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get away with. Um, I love the idea of cover sound. There's a spot that I, that I hunt. It's a swamp. And and actually I was texting you about it here like two years ago. It was a small little 25 acre patch of swamp and, um, had 150 inch deer in it for Pennsylvania. That's a big, that's a big deer, you know, and I'd live in the suburbs and it was suburb hunting. Um, and, uh, I was always getting busted, like walking into that spot, like always. Cause there's only one way in and one way out, like, cause it's surrounded by private, you know, people's homes. And so Mm -hmm. you didn't have another way in. And so, what I ended up figuring out was, was either hunted on windy days, wet days, or whenever I would walk in because it was close to a road, I would only move when traffic would go by and I would use the cover sound to cover my, to cover my steps, especially if it was dry out. And and I mean, it would take me a while to get to my tree or wherever I was going, but you know, I would get in then usually undetected and have a, and have a better hunt. And, and so I think that that's like critical, like, you know, wind is not just for, um, you know, beating the deer's nose necessarily. It also can help you and just like, in how you move and how it conceal conceals your movement. And then for me, I think it gives you an opportunity too. if you know where something's bedded, maybe a little spot and stock type of thing, you know, maybe a little ground hunting in that, in that scenario. Uh, cause you can get away yeah. with a little bit more and get a little closer. So it might be an opportunity where if you know a deer's bedded somewhere and it's hard to kill him from a tree, it's like, that might be the day that you, you know, hunting from the ground because you can get close enough then. So how about you, Matt, sure. Any, anything to, uh, anything to add to that? No, I, we have high wind days all the time over here. If it's real high wind, I have seen them be a little bit more skittish in their movements, but a 15, 20 mile an hour wind is pretty consistent over here. Mm -hmm. If it's over that, I don't go out all that often because I don't like being in the tree a lot of the times, but (laughs) yeah, it's, I do the, when you get up in that 20 mile an hour wind, I do notice that they start to be a little more jumpy coming in. So, yeah, yeah. I, I made the foolish mistake well, the one year during a hurricane uh, that was blowing through. Um, <laughs> I, and I'm not even lying. Like the, it's like, it was the opening day the one year and I was so hell bent on going out. I was like, it's opening day. I'm going out. A hurricane rolled in like pissing rain, just like blowing sideways with like 35, 40 mile per hour winds. And, uh, you know, I guess at that point it was like a, a low pressure or whatever, but the, the hurricane came off the coast near Jersey and blew through. And I was in the tree the whole day, just riding out 30, 40 mile per hour winds. <laughs> like <laughs> it was quite possibly one of the dumbest things I've ever done. Um, you know, I've not done it since, but you know, if no one can question my dedication for one white tails. So <laughs> how about you? Dan? I What's shot a giant eight pointer uh, one time, uh, in a thunder thunderstorm when I had the flu. nice that's awesome yeah you know every every uh disadvantage can be an advantage yeah you know everybody says you know too hot to hunt too windy to hunt too you know you know should i go out there it's raining and this that the other thing yeah but every disadvantage is an advantage you just have to find the reason why it's an advantage i mean i've shot bucks when it's 90 degrees out over a water hole right you know, I've, I've, I've shot him when it's windy, when it's in a spot you can't get to. Mm-hmm. I've shot him when it's rainy, when it's a spot where it's all crunchy leaves all the way in there. Um, everything has an advantage, and you just have to think about how it's an advantage to you for that day. Yeah. yeah. But really, really, there is no bad day to hunt. Right. Yeah. No, 100%. I agree. And I think Except for like, maybe a hurricane. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a day you want to set it out. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah it was pretty i mean there was no rain gear that was going to save me that day like i was bone I, like i was soaked to the bone like you know i got back you know uh this was actually a couple years ago i was i was hunting our family farm and i got back because my father-in-law was with me and i got back to our little our, our camp and i walked in and uh like it was my father-in-law and like one of his buddies you know and um they're a little older than me of course and, uh, so they didn't even go out. They were like, you're crazy. Like I got up early and they're like, man, it's like blowing like crazy pissing rain. We're not going out. And I was like, I'm going. And they were like, you'll be back in an hour. I stayed out the whole day. 
came back, you know, at dark and they're like, I can't believe you sat out in that, that mess. They're like, you're either stupid or tough. I'm not quite sure which one it is, but you know, I, I would say maybe a little bit of both, <laughs> but, uh, all right. So we'll get off of my stupidity and then go to someone's smart question here is what we're going to, is what we're going to do next. So this fella asks here, um, and we're getting close to the end here. We only have a couple more questions. So, um, Dominant wins. He's asking about dominant wins changing during the year. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, I'm just, I don't know 100% if that's true or not. I'd be curious to know if that is. But he says, is it safe to assume that betting changes throughout the year based on how the dominant wins might shift throughout the year? Uh, you know, I don't know where he's at, but where I'm at, the, the dominant wind seems to be, stay pretty consistent. Right. You know, I got uh, pretty much a west wind. That sometimes it blows southwest, sometimes northwest. It was pretty much west the whole season, but I get east winds too. Mm-hmm. But my dominant wind is, is west all season. But it is safe to say that betting shifts during the year. I mean, right. deer move around, um, especially the, the um, middle-aged deer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the guys that are after like the, the three-year-old buck, which is, you know, you know the common buck most guys shooting to shoot what they consider a trophy buck right when you start getting an older class they really seem to lock down to certain bedding areas hmm. it's like uh i i don't know why but it almost seems like they're easier to hunt they're just harder to find right they're they're, they're hard to kick out of the bedding areas basically um are, now, are uh, you... the, the biggest buck i ever shot bedded in the same spot every time it was a west wind for two years huh it was just a uh, almost a bulletproof spot, and, and until I got the ball to sneak in there and just take a chance at it, that worked. Right. Um, but but uh, the older they get, the more they lock into those spots. That's interesting. And the harder they are to kick out of them. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting because I would have almost thought the opposite. I would have almost thought that they that they would move around based on like, you know, because I mean. Like if they're hunt if they're if they're bedded in a spot on a west wind, it's like if it's west and has a little bit of south in it, it's like you know an older buck might stay in that spot because well this bed's good where a younger deer might move. And I would have thought maybe the opposite of that because as that wind shifts, he's recognizing like mm, I might have a little bit of a vulnerability here. Let me get out of here and go to a go to my you know basically do my my wind shift. You know what I mean? And like, are you yeah, saying? Are you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I you know take the. Take, Take uh, the area I hunt. There's there's a um, a marsh about five miles from my house that uh, there's a twelve pointer in there that I've been hunting for three years. Hmm. I guarantee you that buck is always bedded within a hundred hundred yard area <laughs> of that marsh. Always, he's, he's always in the same spot. It's just a bulletproof spot. But all the younger deer, you see them all over the place. Right. You know, but I've put cameras back here. You pick them up consistently in that same area over and over and over again. It's just very, very hard to hunt them there. Right. And try them. It's very hard. Right. It's just kind of pretty much solid cattails where he's living. Right. But he's always there. And, and what I'm seeing is, is, is almost like those older deer start to learn where the best spark, spots are. And they kind of take them over. It's their spot. Right. And where those younger ones are still finding their place and stuff. And they start to settle around three. Um four, but I think once they get to be five or six years old or even older, mm-hmm. those things lock into certain terrains and they become really hard to kill because they, they lock into certain bedding areas. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, like, uh, per se, a two year old deer might have a hundred different bedding areas that he uses and a three year old deer might have 50. Right. He starts getting to like the four year old deer. They might have 20. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they really spread out a lot, uh, thinner. And for example, um, uh, some of the marshes I hunt, uh, I might know about 75, 80 different bedding areas and you can consistently kill nice bucks in most of those, hmm. but there's five or six that I, uh, that are always the spots where I see the mature ones. Right. That's interesting. You know, certain bedding areas will hold mature bucks and certain bedding areas won't. Right. Yeah. I think for the guy that wrote this in, it's like the thing I, I would go back to is like what we were talking about with like checking those wind conditions of on those prevailing winds, you know what I mean? And, and understanding like what, where the best betting opportunities are with those prevailing winds looking at your map, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, yep. you know, I don't know where he's at specifically, but just like say we're in, in hill country or whatever, and he's got mm-hmm. a lot of South and Southwest winds. It's like, well, then I'm going to want to look at a lot of North and Northeast and East points. 
You know what I mean? And those are so, the places I'm going to run so to. So to go back into that older deer thing in hill country is what I find is some of those points that, that point, you, you know, like point to the east. You know, a west wind will work. Mm-hmm. A southwest wind will work. A northwest wind will work, right? Yep. And then if it's got a, 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 it's around a thermal hub or something where it's got bedding all the way around it, mm-hmm. you'll live in that thermal hub and bed off of all of those points. And that's why that's such a good area for a mature buck because he likes to get in those little small areas. Mm-hmm. He likes to make his home range much tighter. Yep. Yeah, so now he can live in that valley and monitor that whole valley with just, you know, for many beds. six or seven beds around that, that little hub, yeah. right? Yeah. So that marsh you were talking about with that 12-pointer, is that is is he in a, a thermal hub area and he that's why he's staying in that, like, one kind of... No, he's just in, a, he's just in an open marsh where nobody goes. You have to walk through uh, water uh, um, over your waist to get right. to him right. for quite a long ways. So sounds like when you finally kill him, we're going to get a picture of you in your underwear. Is what it sounds like. <laughs> you, you might. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't kill myself, try right. to kill him. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, don't don't do that. I don't. I'm not saying I'd like to see in your underwear, but I prefer that than 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 you uh, going below ground. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh man. All right, so we're going to go back to a similar question we had. We were talking about wind speed before. This fellow writes in, and I'm curious to hear what your what your take is on this or what your uh, preference is. It says, you know, if you're hunting in a tree, you know, do you prefer a calm wind, like 5, 10 mile per hour, or you prefer something over 10 mile per hour? So really the question is, is like, what's your kind of favorite wind speed to, to hunt? Um, me, I, I like a calm wind. I don't like a dead calm because it's so hard to pull something off to get your bow back or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't like it, um, you, you know, like windy either. I like to, um, I like to just have it, you know, just light wind where it's not dead silent. Mm-hmm. Right, Matt. What about you, man? Like, what's your? I know you were saying you get some pretty consistently, you know, up around that twenty mile per hour range for where you're at. But you know, if you have your, uh, if you have your choice, what, what's your, what's your wind preference? I I like hunting when five ten mile an hour winds. Like Dan said, it gives you a little bit of cover for movement, but it doesn't blow you out of the tree. Mm-hmm. I, I obviously, I hunt uh, some higher winds as well because it's always windy around here. But five to ten is where I'd say I'd ideally have it. All right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like for me, you know, I typically, I'm, I'm in the same camp with you guys. I like just enough to have something, you know what I mean? So I can play the wind a little bit and it's not just dead calm and, maybe a little bit of leaves rustling can kind of help me a little bit whenever I'm, you know, pulling my bow back or whatever. But the interesting thing was, is I, I read a study at one point, I want to say it was maybe like two years ago. And I, and I might get this wrong. If someone out there has read this study or knows of it, like, you know, message me and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I want to say that they saw like the best movement related to wind was like, I want to say it was like 15 to 20 miles per hour. That actually, like, they saw the best movement on collar on collar deer. I think it might have even been a study at Penn State because they have a big deer uh, biology kind of uh, study at, at that university, and I feel like they might have did it on that um, one big chunk of public land out by out by Penn State, and it was like like fifteen to twenty mile per hour wind. They actually saw a significant pickup in their in their daylight movement, which I thought was interesting. Mm. So, so there that you go. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say this: hurricanes, not so much. Did not see any deer. <laughs> During, during that so if anyone's telling you that that's a good day to hunt they're wrong um last question man so we made it we made it through alive at this point uh so we'll hit this last question and then we'll we'll pause for any uh, final thoughts but this fella this is part bear too man so this is right up your alley dan um how far away this, this fella writes uh can a deer or a bear scent check an area using just a thermal pool so what are your thoughts on that He's like, is it a hundred yards? Yeah. Like a thermal pool. Like I'm, I'm assuming he's th- saying like, you know, there's, there's a pretty calm wind where the wind's not really dictating a whole lot of what's going on in terms of like, what's the, what the thermals is going to do and where it's going to land per se. And he's just curious, like how much of a factor is that? And how far could that travel for an animal to, to scent check an area? Well, um, that's an interesting question because it's hard to answer. I mean, it would, it would depend on how far the thermals are pulling. Right. I mean, it, it would be the same question to say how far does a thermal pull. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it pulls from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill, but in, in low, flat, wetland, like a bear would 
being in a lot of cases, but I guess bears are in hilly terrain too. I've just used to hunt them in swamps. Right. But uh, swamp terrains, the, the thermals pull very little. Mm-hmm. But uh, to give a perspective, um, I saw a study just like you saw a study on bears. Hmm. And it had it was a study on bears coming out of denning. And uh, it had nothing to do with hunting. It was a just a study on how they feed. Right. I, I kind of get into that stuff. Yeah. I'm a weirdo. But uh, the bears were coming out of denning and wandering around looking for food because they're half starved from being denned up all winter. Right. And they'd be walking, and you could see on the uh, the radio collars that they would turn and go directly in the wind because they smell something. And mm-hmm. they would go straight into the wind. And these bears would walk as much as 10 miles to a, a winter kill wow. and eat it. Wow. 10 miles. I mean, that's crazy. Well, that's my one-eyed raccoon. Right? I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like it's the theme it's the we same have thing. here. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Like, I can't. That's nuts, man. Like, it's just hard to fathom. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's even like, if you think about it, that's even stronger than like a shark would have whenever there's a drop of blood in the water. You know what I mean? Cause or, yeah, or it's, or it's the equivalent or it's pretty close to the same. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it, it is, it is insane how well those animals smell. I and mean, it's just something you gotta, you know, yeah. A hard time taking in perspective as a human, because we are so, um, site based. Everything around us revolves around our eyes. Mm-hmm. To a deer, everything revolves around their nose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can make them blind, and they'd be okay. It'd be like uh, us not being able to smell. It'd be like a, a pain, but we we get by just fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that'd be like taking their 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 eyes out. They'd be fine with no eyes. Just right. don't take their nose away. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, I read an article at one point. You know, a, a guy was talking about. Um, and I wish I could remember the particulars of it. Cause I think he did start talking about how far, like, you know, a deer's nose capability or whatever. Um, but what he was saying was like basically how they smell, you know, he was like, you know, he's like for an example and they, and they did the classic, like, you know, it's whatever it is, 10,000 times a bloodhound or whatever, 1000 times a bloodhound or whatever the, the, the multiplier was, you know, um, don't quote me on the number. I'm just kind of throwing a number out, but it was obscenely higher than a bloodhound would smell. And he was like, basically, he was like, to give you an example, he was like, you walk into a house and your mom, your wife, your whomever is making, you know, lasagna. He's like, you can walk in and smell, oh, that smells like Italian food, right? He's like, if you're really Mm -hmm. good, he's like, if you have a good nose and maybe a good palate, right? He's like, you might be able to walk in and say, oh man, mom's making lasagna. And be able to tell just because the familiarity with the smells when she's making lasagna versus anything else Italian, Right. He was like, the way deer smell isn't just that, like, I'm making lasagna. He's like, you're making lasagna. Jennifer made it. She got her groceries at Giant, and those groceries came from Idaho. You know what I mean? Like, he was like, it's it's that level. He was like, where they actually smell molecularly. He's like, they don't have, it's not scent. He's like, it's molecule. Yeah, they, they actually, uh, they have a, a an organ in their nose that isn't very well studied. I mean, it, there hasn't been too many scientists that have gone into it, but they've gone into it a little bit. It's called a vomer nasal organ. Hmm, interesting. And what a vomer nasal organ does is it divides scent. So they don't smell like you or me. And this is a bear or a deer. And a bear actually smells better than a deer. Hmm. But they both smell phenomenally more than a bloodhound. Right. But what a vomer nasal organ does is it separates the odors. So they don't, they don't smell lasagna. They smell the flour, the yeast, the, yeah. every piece of ingredient separately. Yeah. So that's why cover scents don't work right. because if you like put, put, uh, uh, fox urine on you or whatever, um, they're going to smell the fox urine and you they're, they're capable of separating orders. Right. That's crazy, man. And I think you might be the first person ever on a podcast to say vomer nasal organ. Just saying like that was <laughs> <laughs> Matt. Have you ever heard of vomer nasal organ? I think I'm going to name my next child vomer nasal organan. That just sounds yeah, like, no, I not oh, heard of that. That's, that's interesting. We got a cat named Bomber Nasal Organ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. Man, well, this that's the last question we have. Like, I'll turn it over to you guys, Dan, uh, or Matt, you go first. Do you have anything else to add before we uh, before we shut this thing down? No, I think it was a great conversation. We covered a lot of topics and the dissecting of certain stands and other people's questions, I think, is really going to help out and it's definitely giving me some ideas on what I need to do for this season and 
hopefully have some good success this year. Awesome. Dan, anything, uh, any closing remarks before we get out of here? Sure. First off, I'd like to say, uh, I appreciate Matt coming on and uh, putting up with us. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, secondly, uh, you guys really want to know how the wind flows, uh, carry milkweed with you everywhere you go and, and test the, the currents and really watch what it's doing. Yeah. Um, that stuff is the biggest teacher there is. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I would just like to say, Matt, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate you being a sport and, and, and joining us. Uh, happy to have you on. Hopefully, we answered your question, you know, uh, well enough and, uh, and you'll still be our friends after this, hopefully. And, uh, Dan, as always, man, you know, I love you, bro. And, uh, I appreciate your time coming on here. Looking forward to doing the next couple sessions with you and, uh, just appreciate your friendship and, and your willingness to always help, uh, help hunters try to, to get better and, uh, and, uh, and be part of this hunting community. So I appreciate you, man. Thanks. You're not bad yourself, Glenn. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe there as well. I'll be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.